you would please open your Bible up to Revelation chapter 1. We have completed our discussion of both the prologue and the salutation of the book of Revelation, and now we come to the first major section of the book, which we find in our general outline, and which we entitled The Person of Christ, as you see up here. Our three-part general outline, remember, is based upon Revelation 119, where Christ told John to write the things which he had seen, to write the things which are, and to write the things which shall be hereafter. And in today's lesson, we are going to consider those things which John had seen. That's the first part of our outline. And what he had just seen and sat down to write was a person. And the person was the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his unveiled glory as very God of very God. Now, in the verses that we're going to be covering for this study, which I have entitled Banishment to Blessing, we're going to see the Lord, through John's description, not as he was when he walked upon this earth during his 33 years of incarnation, as he was in the likeness of men, you know, formed in the likeness of men. We're not going to see him like that. We are going to see him as he is today. And how is he today? He is resurrected and glorified. Now, it's interesting to consider the fact that nowhere in all of the New Testament do we have recorded for us a physical description of Jesus Christ. Did you realize that? Nowhere are we told, for example, how tall he was or how much he weighed. Nowhere are we told the color of his eyes or the color of his hair or anything specific you know, what type of nose he had, or thin lips or big lips or whatever. We are not told anything specific about the Lord's physical appearance. Now, all the pictures that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the millions of pictures over the centuries, have simply come from the imaginations of the artists because no one for sure knows what the Lord Jesus Christ looked like. They know what men in that day, Jewish men, basically looked like in general. Most of them had dark hair, most of them had beards, that sort of thing. But no one for sure knows what the Lord looked like. And that's why, of course, as I show you transparencies, every one of them, Jesus looks different, right? Because it's just the artist's imagination. But the Bible does tell us that there was nothing unique, nothing really, you know, real striking about the Lord's appearance that would make men esteem him as someone special. We read that in Isaiah 53, verse 2. But I would imagine that to the believer, to the one who did believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that his appearance was very, very special and very, very beautiful. But Scripture seems to purposely avoid giving us any physical description of Christ during the time of his incarnation, probably so that we would not mentally visualize him as he was. And I hope you don't do that. As I show so many transparencies, I'm probably wrong in doing that. But I do try to show you different pictures so you don't have one particular picture of him visualized in your mind. Because I don't think scripture wants us to focus mentally on his physical appearance as he was as a human being. I think scripture wants us to focus 
more on how he is today because his present and his eternal appearance is far more important because that is how he is going to be when we one day see him face to face. And it is how he will appear throughout all of eternity. Paul, Paul wrote for us in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.16, Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. So we are not to um, center our visual, mental picture of Christ as he was as a human, but focus on him as he is today. He is not in the flesh anymore today. Now, in this lesson, and I wasn't able to get all the way through the physical description in one lesson, so we're going to have to continue this next week. But in this lesson and part of next week's lesson, we're going to learn how the glorified Lord Jesus Christ appeared to the Apostle John. And this is the only physical description of Christ given in the Bible. However, even in this description, we don't know for sure that this is how the Lord will appear when we do actually behold him, when we actually look into his marvelous face, because the various descriptions of him are symbolic. What we can know is that this is how he actually did appear to John, because John was merely recording what he saw. Now, whether or not this is how Christ will appear to us, you know, when we see him at the rapture, or how he will appear when he comes at the time of his second coming, and how he will appear throughout all of eternity, we simply don't know. But this is the only physical description we have. And yet it is symbolic. So there is a lot of uncertainty here. Now, as we study verses 9 to 20 which completes chapter 1, and we won't finish that today. We will finish it next week, Lord willing. We're going to look at two main divisions. First of all, in verse 9 alone, we're going to look at the banishment of John, in which we will consider the apostle's situation, you know, there on Patmos, and his circumstances at the time when he was visited by the resurrected Christ. And then in verses 10 all the way to 20, we're going to discuss the blessing. And this is the blessing of John, a blessing which is unsurpassed in its nature and in its scope with regard to what he saw and what he heard. So that is our outline. That's where we're going to be heading. And we'll begin by looking at the banishment. If you look with me at Revelation 1, verse 9, it starts out saying, I, John, who also am your brother, now remember he's writing to the believers in the seven churches of Asia Minor. So he says, am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Before John wrote about his vision of Christ, he began here by identifying himself as one of the members of the church to whom he was addressing this book. As the last living apostle, you know, John was entitled to all kinds of respect and esteem by the other believers of that day. And yet, here we find he is very humbly writing of himself as only one of the brethren. You know, remember we mentioned last week 
how ecclesiasticism has done a lot of damage to the church of Jesus Christ by making this division, creating a division between clergy and laity. Well, the Apostle John was probably esteemed as the most revered, most honored saint of his day, because here he was, the last living apostle. And yet, what do we find him doing? Instead of drawing attention to himself and, you know, saying something like, I, John, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, or I, John, a firsthand witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, or one of the very first of his apostles. He doesn't draw any attention to himself when he could have. He simply identifies himself as one with the people. He wrote, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation. So not only was he identifying himself as a brother in Christ, but as one who shared in the same persecutions. The the word tribulation there actually is the Greek word for persecution. He was sharing in the same persecutions as the other believers at that time. The same persecutions which had taken all of the other apostles already. And so we do need to to distinguish this word tribulation from the period of tribulation about which he wrote later on in this book. He is not speaking about the tribulation period of seven years. Now, some people have thought that, so make sure you understand that distinction. He is talking about persecution here. He was going through persecution as a member of the early church, the first century church, which was, if you didn't know, it was persecuted unmercifully, that first century church, and the second century church as well. It wasn't until the time of um, Emperor Constantine when the persecution ceased, and that was not until the third century. The cruelty of the Roman Empire against Christians was the worst under two emperors. Under Emperor Nero, you've all heard of him, he was a maniac, and also under Emperor Domitian. However, Domitian was both the first emperor of Rome to set up images of himself to be worshipped throughout the empire, and also the first one to take the title, Our Lord and Our God, which was how he wanted people to address him. And those, of course, who refused to do so, as all true Christians would, they would never call anyone our our Lord and our God other than God himself, Jesus Christ. So if they refused to do this, which Christians would, then they would be generally, what, martyred, killed. Absolutely, and they had some horrible ways of doing that, too. John, however, was not martyred, even though we can be sure that he would have refused to bow to anyone other than the true God. And I imagine that the Romans figured that if they martyred John, they would probably only create more problems for themselves. Perhaps the people, they would think, would try to make him into a god, as they had made Jesus Christ into a god. Or maybe they would even claim his resurrection from the dead, as they had with this one named Jesus, because John was the last living apostle. So I think the Romans purposely decided not to martyr him, and instead they banished him to a little island. It's about 10 miles long and 5 miles wide, 
in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, actually up there in the Aegean part, Aegean Sea. Oh, I have a map. Here it is. That uh, picture is not really too great. Here's the Aegean Sea. Here's the Mediterranean, so it's right there. It's all one sea, actually. Um, it's really more of a crescent-shaped island, more of a C-shaped island than what they show here in the picture. Patmos was the name of it. It's a Greek island, and Patmos in Greek means to tread underfoot or to suffer. So that was very appropriate that he went to an island where he suffered. <clears throat> and this little island is 25 miles off of the coast of Asia Minor. It's right across from a city that isn't on this map that was called Miletus. I think you read about Miletus in the book of Acts. The island has no trees and only very, very sparse vegetation, but it consists very primarily, if you've ever been to Greece, you know this is true in most of Greece and the islands, consists of a lot of very rugged rocks and hills. And today, if you were go to go there today, Emmy, I think you've been there, right, wherever Emmy is. Haven't you been to Patmos? I never have been, but I'd love to one day. <clears throat> if you were to go there today, you would probably want to see the dirty, dark cave where tradition says that John lived during his time of exile there on Patmos and where they say he wrote the book of Revelation. That's only tradition we don't know for sure, but it's very possible that he did live in a cave. The famous archaeologist Sir William Ramsey <clears throat> tells us that John's period of time on Patmos was characterized or would have been characterized by a lack of food you know, just a small amount of nutrition, inadequate shelter and clothing, and most likely that he would have slept on the bare ground inside that cave. And it is also very probable that John suffered further by being forced to work in underground mines there. And he would, of course, have been under the constant restraint and cruelty of a military guard of the Roman army. And also, we must remember that John was approximately 90 to 100 years of age at this time. I cannot imagine. I mean, when you're that age, you can barely move, right? Yet the wonder, I mean, I'm half that age and I can barely move. <laughs> Yet the wonderful thing is that we find he was not bitter. John was not bitter, nor did he succumb to self-pity, which it would be very easy to do in his situation. In the midst of all of his suffering, for Christ's sake, he found triumph, and he found victory, and he found joy over depression and over discouragement and over self-pity. How did he do it? Like Joan taught us, how do you do it? Well, he gives us the answer here in verses 9 and also in verse 10. First of all, John overcame depression by way of the patience that he received from the Lord. In verse 9, he wrote of being not only a brother and a companion in tribulation with his fellow believers, but of being their companion in the kingdom and in the patience of Jesus Christ. John was filled with the patience that he received from Christ. And he had patience because of his faith in Christ and because of his knowledge of Christ's inevitable kingdom. 
He knew that one day Christ was coming back and that he would establish his kingdom. In fact, I'm sure John thought it would be during his lifetime. And he knew also that the fiery trials and the persecutions and the troubles and the heartaches of this present life are only temporary and that great rewards, rewards beyond our imaginations, await the believer on the other side, especially the believer who has suffered for Christ's sake. And most likely, at this point in his life, John had already read Peter's inspired letter in which the godly older man, Peter, whom John probably loved more than anyone on the face of the earth, any human being, at least. Of course, he loved Jesus Christ, first of all. But second only to Christ, I think John loved Peter. And so I am sure that he had read Peter's uh, first epistle where Peter had said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. You know, we shouldn't think it's strange when we are in trials and when we're persecuted for our faith, when we suffer because of our faith. That's not strange. It's been happening all along, right? To all Christians of all ages. And uh, it isn't anything strange. It's to be expected. Peter went on and he said, Don't think it's strange, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. For when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Peter was saying here that Christians should not at all be surprised at the fiery ordeals for Christ's sake, which come upon them for their testing. They shouldn't look at these trials as being something unusual, something strange. Rather, they should do what? They should rejoice for the privilege that they have in sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You know, this is something I think we're missing out on in this country. I think we're going to start getting some blessings pretty soon. But we have missed out on suffering a lot for Christ's sake, as believers do in other countries where they're really, really persecuted. He says they are to, Christians are to rejoice, and they're to keep on rejoicing in the Greek verb tense, so that at the time of the Lord's return, when his glory is revealed, they may rejoice with great and exceeding joy. So according to Peter... If you are reviled, and you may be reviled by some loved ones of yours who aren't saved and think you're crazy and maybe don't even bother talking to you or maybe co-workers or or neighbors, Uh, if you are reviled or if you do suffer for the name of Christ, not just because you're an obnoxious person, that doesn't count. (laughs) It has to be for Christ's sake. I get reviled a lot of times just for being obnoxious, but it has to be for the name of Christ. If you are, and actually if you are living godly in Christ Jesus, you should be, because what does it tell us in 2 Timothy 3.12? All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So, you know, if you're not suffering some kind of persecution, you're probably not living godly, and you're probably not opening your mouth about your faith. Anyway, if you are being reviled, then you are blessed, according to 1 Peter, because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests upon you. 
So God, through the apostle Peter, was saying, in effect, hang in there and just keep on trusting me. Any suffering that you are encountering for my sake is just for a little while. If we could only get a grasp on that with life, period, right? Anything we're going through right now is just for a little while. In light of eternity, it's just a drop in a bucket. And he says, it's being used. I'm doing this for your own good. I am maturing you. This is being used. This trial is being used to conform you more into the image of my son. And one day you are going to rejoice with me because of it. But for now, just keep on trusting me and don't lean upon your own understanding. I promise that I will make it right in the end. And he will. Our God will make it right in the end. And having this perspective on trials and on testings and on tribulations gives the believer the patience of who? Of Job, (laughs) yes, and of Jesus Christ, who, remember, for the joy set before him, he had his focus on what was ahead in eternity and in glory. For the joy set before him, he was able to endure the shame and the pain of the cross and even death itself. Now, the reason John was suffering is given to us at the end of Revelation 1.9. He was exiled to the isle that is called Patmos for what? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. His offense here was exactly that for which he had been guilty for probably about 70 years. He was preaching the word of God, and he was teaching salvation through Jesus Christ. We can be sure that this was not the first time that John had suffered for Christ's sake since he had last seen Christ when he ascended into heaven. And since he that wonderful day when he outran Peter and was the first to get at the tomb, but not the first to see the grave clothes. But he was the first that when he did see the grave clothes, the empty grave clothes that were still in the shape of a body, that he was the first one to what? Believe. He was, John was the first apostle to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this, I am sure, was not the first time he had been persecuted because that sight totally transformed his whole life. And from that day to this day in Patmos, I am sure he continually, continually told people about Jesus Christ. Oh, I have a picture of him at the tomb. And also, John was probably not unprepared for the suffering that he underwent, underwent during those years since he first believed. Because he would have recalled by the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring to the remembrance all the things that Jesus had said, to bring that back to the minds of the apostles. So he would have remembered the many times when Jesus himself had told him and the other apostles that they would suffer for him. You know, the Lord had warned them, for example, in Matthew 24, Verse 9, he had said, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and they shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. The Lord had warned him about this. And he had also told them during his uh, delivery of the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew 5, verse 10, that 
they would be blessed. Remember, he said, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Because yours will be what? The kingdom of heaven. Therefore, he had said in the Sermon on the Mount that they were to rejoice. Again, he used the same word. They were to rejoice and they were to be exceeding glad for great would be their reward in heaven. So that is why John was able to overcome depression and overcome self-pity. And we need to remember that we need to have the patience of Job and the patience of Christ and look forward to what awaits us in the kingdom. All right, let's move on to the second part of our outline here, which is the blessing. <clears throat> if I can find my outline buried under this pile. Move on to the blessing, and for that we'll look at um, <clears throat> verses 10 to 11. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. It was while John was in exile on this little Greek isle that, John, that God turned his banishment into a blessing. That's the title of our message. And he did so by giving him the most extensive revelation of future events to ever be shown to a New Testament writer. And as we consider the circumstances concerning the beginning of John's wonderful blessing, of course the whole blessing is the whole book of Revelation, uh, we're going to look at verses 10 to 20, and I've read the first two to you because we're going to look at three parts of the blessing. First of all, we're going to look at the great voice. That's what I just read about. Then we're going to look at the, well, the great voice that John heard. Then we're going to look at the great vision John saw. And then we're going to conclude in next week's lesson by looking at the great victor John worshipped. That'll be in verses 16 to 20. Now, in verse 10, we read that John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And there has been a lot of debate over that little phrase, the Lord's Day. Some Bible expositors say, I had that written up there. Boy, that's amazing. It's almost like writing with invisible ink. <laughs> yeah, it just disappears. Some Bible expositors say that this term, the Lord's Day, uh, which appears here, by the way, the first time in the Bible, that this refers to the first day of the week. In other words, to Sunday the day when Christians gather together and worship and express their belief in the resurrection of Christ, which occurred not on the Jewish Sabbath, not on Saturday, but his resurrection occurred on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Then, So some say the Lord's Day means Sunday, that he was in the Spirit on a Sunday. Other Bible teachers say that this term refers to the day of the Lord, and this is a term which is often used in both the Old and the New Testament and means in its broad scope 
it refers to the entire period of time from right after the rapture to the time of the new heavens and the new earth. That that in the broad scope is a reference to the day of the Lord. And in its narrow scope, it refers to the actual day when the Lord Jesus returns in his second coming. That being, you know, the day of the Lord, the single day. But the broad term refers to the whole period from the seven years of tribulation to the eternal state. <clears throat> so that's what others say it refers to, to. Now, those who take the term the Lord's Day as a reference to the day of the Lord say that John was caught up in the Spirit and actually translated forward in time, you know, kind of like time machine, except he didn't have a machine. He was taken by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He was taken forward in time to that great future day of the Lord. Kind of like, you know, Ezekiel was um, taken, he was a captive in Babylon, and he was taken uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem in the spirit to see what was happening in the temple. And also as Paul was caught up into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 4, where he heard and where he saw unspeakable things which he couldn't even write about or speak about. So they say that that's what happened. The people who take the Lord's day to refer to the day of the Lord say he was caught up in the spirit and really just transported in time to actually see these things. Now those people, on the other hand, who hold to the view that John was simply worshiping, you know, he was in the spirit, he was yielded to the Spirit and full of the Spirit. He was worshiping on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday, say that he was in deep prayer and in meditation and he was filled with the Spirit when he heard and saw the things that he saw. Now, are you waiting for me to tell you which one I <laughs> think is better? I don't know. I honestly don't know. But I do know that whichever way of interpretation a person takes, it really doesn't matter because John still testified to us over and over again that what he wrote about, he actually saw. Remember that time you looked up all the saws and all the herds? <laughs> he actually saw and he actually heard these things with his own eyes and ears. Therefore, we are to believe it as being direct truth from God himself. And I honestly don't know how he saw these things or if he saw him on a Sunday or any day of the week and was transported in time. And if you think you really know, then you can come and share that with me later and tell me why you think you know that, because I couldn't come to any conclusion. But I don't really think it matters. He saw what he saw and he heard what he heard. Now, what was it on that special day that first grabbed his attention? Well, verse 10 tells us that it was something he heard behind him rather than something he saw. Now, throughout the scripture, the emphasis of God is always, always on hearing first and then seeing. In the beginning, we are told that God said, let there be light. And then there was what? Light. So the word came before the light, the sight. Throughout Christ's earthly life, he was always, always trying to get people to focus on his what? words. His works, his miracles, were merely to authenticate the truth of his words. His words were always more important than his works. 
When Peter, James, and John, you know, were all hung up uh, on what they were seeing up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happened? God's voice thundered from heaven, and this was to correct them. They were hung up on what they were seeing. But God from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. God was telling them, Go by what he says, not by what you see. The Bible's emphasis is always on hearing, not on seeing. Jesus said, The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. John six sixty three. The world, you know, tells us, Show us, and then we'll believe. Their motto is, Seeing is believing. But God says, No, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So John heard something before he ever saw the glorified Christ. And this is how it will be at the rapture too, by the way, because we believers, I hope I can say we, well, I can either, whether I'm alive or dead, it will be we, we will hear something before we behold our bridegroom face to face. First we'll hear the trumpet. And then we'll see him. And so the only words that John used here to describe to us what he heard was a great voice. And he says that this great, great voice sounded like what? What I just blew. <laughs> a trumpet. It sounded like a trumpet. So the trumpet then, here in verse 10, is the very first symbol that we find used in the book of Revelation. This is our first symbol. And it's not a very difficult symbol to interpret because back in the Old Testament days, the trumpet was used to sound commands. When, for example, God revealed himself, you know, to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai, he was heard, it tells us in Exodus 19.16, he was heard with the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud. And therefore, a trumpet symbolizes authority. And it was also used to gain the attention of those who were being addressed. For example, when the services of the temple were about to begin, it was always the sound of a trumpet which was heard as the great doors to the temple were swung open. When the year of um, Jubilee was ushered in, and that was every 50th year, it was always done with the blowing of a silver trumpet. And on the great day when our Lord will call to himself all the saints, dead and alive, of the church age, they will be called to meet him in the air by the sounding of a trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 The great voice, however, did not just sound notes like a trumpet. It didn't do what I just did, you know, boop, 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 boop. It wasn't just notes. It actually spoke words. So a trumpet that spoke words is what he heard. And the words instantly revealed the identity of the speaker as being one who was equal with God. Now, since we've already discussed, we discussed this last week, the fact that the speaker of John 1.8, remember when we looked at that? The speaker who claimed to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, that this speaker could have been either God the Father or God the Son, Jesus Christ, because both are deity, both are divine, and both can rightfully make such a statement, 
And since we have also already discussed the identity of the speaker of Revelation 1.11, I'm simply right now going to tell you that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you weren't here to study that lesson last week, go ahead and get the tape or the notes. But this speaker here is Jesus Christ. And the verses which follow will prove this out, okay? For example, in verse 13, the speaker is identified as looking like unto the Son of Man. That's a reference to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And when he speaks again down in verses 17 and 18, remember he makes that statement that I am he that liveth and was dead. That can only be Jesus Christ because God the Father was never dead. God the Holy Spirit was never dead. So we know without a shadow of a doubt that the speaker of verse 11 is Jesus Christ. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. A title for Jehovah God, which is used three times in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah 41.4, 44.6, and 48.12. And this demonstrates unquestionably the deity of Jesus Christ. Here we have without a doubt that the speaker is Christ. In Isaiah, the same term, Alpha and Omega, is used undoubtedly about Jehovah God. So we have proved for us the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, as far as we know, John had not heard his Lord's voice for over 70 years, the last time being on the day that Christ ascended into heaven after having told John and the other ten apostles to be his witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Well, John had not heard his Lord's voice since that time. As far as we know, at least it's never recorded in the scripture. And John had proven himself to be very faithful to that last command that he had heard from the lips of his Savior. And that, of course, is why he was in exile here on Patmos, because he had been faithful to that command to be his witness unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And now as an old man who still loved his Savior as much, if not more, probably more, as he had when he'd known him in the flesh, John was privileged once again to hear his voice, even though this time it didn't sound like the voice of a man. It sounded like the voice of God. So I imagine that was even more thrilling. Now, John was also privileged to receive a further command from the Lord. He was told here, What thou seest, write in a what? Write in a, in a book. And what book is that? The book of Revelation, the book we're studying. And notice, he was told to do something with it. Send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia. And then, of course, he lists those seven churches in verse 11. Now, as we mentioned back in one of our introductory lessons to this study, the prophet Daniel was instructed to shut up, to close the divine vision that he had received, and to seal his book until when? Until the end of the end of time until the latter days. On the other hand, John here is told to write down everything that he would see and then to send it in book form immediately to the seven churches. And at the end of Revelation, we've also looked at this before, a similar command is given. John is told in Revelation 22.10 
to seal not the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. So we might ask then, why, why are there so many hundreds of thousands of Christians who have never studied the book of Revelation? When John was told not to seal it, but to send it right away to the churches so they could read it. And why are there so many pastors who have never taught it? Why are they sealing up the very book that God specifically told them not to seal up? I don't know. And it's a shame. And they're missing out on a blessing. Well, the seven churches of Asia Minor, which of course is now modern-day Turkey, which were specifically selected by the Lord Jesus Christ, are very, very, very worthy of our close examination and scrutinization and study. And therefore, we will be devoting at least an entire lesson to each one of them, maybe even more. Last time I taught this, it was an entire lesson. I don't know till I get there if it'll be more than that, but they are well worth it because there is a world of significance and personal application in each one of these letters to the seven churches. But we're going to leave that for later. We're going to leave it for probably a couple weeks from now. But for now, we're going to get on to the great vision that John saw. For that, let's look at verses 12 to 15. It says, and I turned to see the voice. Isn't that an interesting expression? To see the voice (laughs) that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. The moment that John turned to see the voice that had spoken to him, one of the most spectacular sights imaginable was beheld by his eyes. He saw the magnificent, glorified Christ standing in the midst of seven golden candlesticks, which more literally should read lampstands, would be more uh, appropriate. The golden candlesticks are symbolic, of course. John actually saw them. This is what he saw with his eyes. He testifies to us of that. But they were there for him to see as symbolic of something. And now here is a case. Remember I told you sometimes we can be very dogmatic and sometimes we can't be? Well, here is a case where we can be very dogmatic with regard to the interpretation or the meaning of these seven golden candlesticks because they are interpreted for us by Christ himself. In verse 20, the Lord said the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. So we don't have to speculate. We know what the seven candlesticks represent. They are the seven churches. Now, the number seven, as we repeatedly have said, is the biblical number for completion. And so this is telling us that the seven churches stand for the complete church of Christ. So the seven candlesticks stand for, symbolize, the church of Christ. Now, a candlestick or a lampstand 
is very appropriate. It is a very appropriate symbol for the church because the Lord, while he was in the world, was the light of the world. Remember, he said that in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. But before he departed, he told his disciples, ye are the light of the world. That's in Matthew 5, 14. Christ, of course, is the source of the light because he is the light. But he uses his church, meaning the body of all true believers, to convey his light of truth to the world. His church, in other words, is to be the bearer of light to the world. So a candlestick is very appropriate. A lampstand is even more appropriate because a lampstand had oil which went through it in order to light the light. And that's what we need to have our lights lit and lit and <laughs> to lit, have our lights lit is the oil and what does oil symbolize? Holy Spirit. We must have the Holy Spirit within us in order to give out light. Now, as we will see when we begin to study each one of the seven church letters, Christians can do one of two things. They can either yield themselves to Christ and allow him to shine through them in order to be used, you know, profitably to illumine the darkness of the world around them, or secondly, they can commit sins such as were committed by the churches of Asia Minor, with the tragic consequence being the dimming of Christ's light, and in some cases, the putting out of that light altogether. Now, that isn't speaking about somebody losing their salvation. That's just speaking about a local church losing its testimony and Christ removing his candlestick. And we'll talk more about that when we get into the seven churches. But we're also told that the candlesticks were made of what material? What were they? Gold. They were gold, and they were made of gold, and that, of course, is the most costly and precious of metals. And this tells us that his church is the most valuable possession he has. It is the most valuable thing to Christ. To him, we who make up the church are like the most precious metal that man knows, and that, of course, is pure gold. Now, in addition to seeing the seven golden candlesticks, John went on to tell us that he saw someone in the midst of the seven candlesticks, and his description of this person is that he was one like unto the Son of Man. But this was, of course, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who was seen standing in the midst of the seven churches, because he is the bond of their union, and he is the source of their light and their power. He is also the one who possesses them, because he purchased them with his own precious blood. And is, isn't it interesting here that despite the brilliant glory of Christ's appearance, which John described to us in verses 13 to 16, the apostle realized that the one he was seeing was one like unto the Son of Man. Jesus Christ is both 100% human, man, and he is 100% God, and he will remain so throughout all of eternity. So when John saw him, he saw him, and he appeared as the Son of Man. Standing before him was true man as God had intended for man to be. 
You know, the Son of Man is a title that was the Lord's most favorite title for himself. And he called himself this title a total of 83 times. The Son of Man was a messianic title. And it was used in Daniel 7.13 as well as in the Psalms. In specific, the title, the Son of Man, refers to Christ's humanity. But, you can read this in your notes, I'll skip over it, it also does definitely refer to his deity as well. Really, there are three things included in the term, the Son of Man. His humanity, his deity, and his messiahship. Because the Old Testament Jew, I mean, the readers and the writers of the Old Testament understood that the Son of Man was a reference to the coming messiah. Well, the next thing described by John is that the Son of Man was clothed in a garment which went down to the foot. Now, this robe represents great distinction. It was the garment which marks him out as being the authoritative judge. And he's also seen, it tells us, with a golden girdle which is girt around his breast. Now, this describes a sash, which was worn higher than the waist. It was worn up here across the chest by both the high priests and the kings. They were the ones who would wear this sash. However, this one is described as being golden, and the only ones who ever wore a golden sash were kings. And so this speaks of the kingship of the Son of Man. So in verse 13, we really have a fourfold picture of Jesus Christ. We have him pictured as the possessor and the power, the light source of the church. We have him pictured as the ascended Son of Man. We have him pictured as the authoritative judge because of that robe he's wearing. And the sash tells us that he's the coming king. So we have all these things symbolized for us in that one verse. And then moving on to verse 14, John describes the Lord's head and his hair and his eyes. He said that both his head and his hairs, I suppose that means, you know, hairs on top of his head, eyebrow hairs, eyelash hairs, you know, think of all the hairs, um, beard, that all, if he had a beard, I don't know, but all the hairs on his head and his head were white. It says uh, white like wool. And white as snow. Now, this apparently means that not only was his hair the color of purest, purest white, but so too was his head. You notice there's a distinction there. It says his head and his hairs. And so this must mean that his face, because the only other thing on your head besides your hair is your face, right? This must mean then that his his face was also white as snow and white as wool. Now, whiteness symbolizes, what do you think? Purity, absolutely. So in this representation of Christ, we have a symbol of the purity and the holiness of the judge who stands in the midst of the churches. He is a holy judge. He is purest white. He is one who is offended by the least little sin because this is an offense against him and against God, his Father. Now, white hair crowning the Lord's head also speaks of, yes, it speaks of great age. It speaks of eternality. I mean, this wasn't just gray hair. 
This was snow white wool, white hair. So it means eternality. And also, somebody said it over here, white hair refers to wisdom. So if you have white hair, you are wise. Don't you love that? You don't like the old part, but you like the wise part. (laughs) Proverbs tells us the glory of young men is their strength. And the beauty of old men is the gray head. I think that's in, I think that's interesting that it says the beauty of old men is the gray head, not the beauty of old. <laughs> but there is another one, Proverbs 16:31. I'm going to put this white-haired lady up there. It does say this in Proverbs 16:31. The gray head is a crown of what? Glory. Crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. In other words, if you're saved and you have white gray hair, that's your crown of glory. Now, the risen glorified Christ is pictured for us not just, as I said, with gray hair, but he has snow white, wool white hair, and he has a white face, which speaks even more powerfully of his glory and his beauty and his righteousness. And by the way, Perhaps this means that you and I ought to get used to really loving and appreciating white hair. Because when we see Jesus Christ face to face, it tells us we're going to be like him, right? So we're going to have white hair throughout all of eternity. Sounds like. Now, it's most interesting to find that John's description of Jesus is almost identical to a description of the Ancient of Days, which is given to us in Daniel 7, 9. Daniel... By way, if you want to flip there, that's fine. Daniel, by way of a night vision, Daniel 7, 9, saw the Ancient of Days sitting upon his throne of heaven. And the prophet described him like this. He said, And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow. Does that sound familiar? And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. Now, by way of comparison, we have another, of just many, many that we have, another biblical evidence of the deity of Christ. Because here, Daniel saw the Ancient of Days, who everyone knows is God Almighty sitting on his throne, and yet he is described as Jesus is described by John in Revelation. Now, mentioning fire... In Daniel 7, 9, it tells us here that his eyes were as flame of fire. Now, fire is a biblical symbol for what do you think? Yes, judgment. The lake of fire, right? Um, It is significant that the Lord's eyes are said to be like a flame of fire because this speaks of his penetrating, omniscient ability to be able to search into the inner heart and soul of men and to judge them, to judge the evil that he sees in them. So no man, no matter how righteous or pious he may appear on the outside, will be able to avoid the searching, fiery eyes of the all-knowing, all-seeing God who judges the heart, you know, just as easily as he can judge what the hands are doing and what the feet are doing. He can see the heart like an open book. One day, Christ is going to judge all the secrets of men. You know, it tells us in Hebrews 4.13, 
that all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And the Greek construction of John's words is literally, and I thought this was interesting, literally his eyes shot fire. His eyes shot fire, which indicates that the Lord was indignant about something here. He was indignant. And as we progress through uh, Christ's message to the seven churches, we're going to find that he was indeed indignant about something. He was indignant about the sins in his church. Well, interestingly enough, John's description of Christ's eyes fits with another vision that Daniel had, and this time it's in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel saw a certain man, it tells us, clothed in linen, whose appearance caused the prophet to be so fearful that he tells us his strength totally left him and he collapsed on the ground unconscious. And Daniel wrote that this one who appeared to him was girded with fine gold. This is in verse 5. Daniel 10, and that his body also was like the barrel, that's a B-E-R-Y-L, it's a jewel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And he was none other what Daniel was seeing here was none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, in his high priestly prayer, do you remember when Jesus was praying to his father in John chapter 17? He had said, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. John 17, 5. Now, by comparing... The appearance of Christ given by John after the Lord's death and resurrection, the appearance we just read about in Revelation 1, by comparing that appearance with the appearance given by Daniel, which of course was even before the Lord was born, we find that God did indeed answer his son's prayer. And he returned unto him his pre-incarnate eternal glory. Because he appears after his resurrection, just as he appeared before his birth. So God answered his prayer. Now another symbolic characteristic of Christ, I'm almost through here, is presented in verse 15. And this one concerns his feet. Now that's where I want to put this picture back up, the feet. John wrote that the Lord's feet were like unto fine brass as they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Now, that should sound familiar to you, having just read Daniel chapter 10's description of that man clothed in the fine linen, the white linen, because Daniel had said that that man that he saw had feet that were the color of polished brass, and his voice was like the voice of a multitude. Sounds very similar, right? Identical to what we just read the description of Christ. Now, the Lord's feet were like fine brass when it is glowing from the heat of a furnace. That's what he's telling us here. Bronze or brass speaks symbolically, once again, of what? Exactly, judgment. So we're seeing symbols of judgment over and over again. It speaks of judgment. It should 
remind us really of the brazen altar of the tabernacle and then later the temple where sin was judged. It was upon the brazen altar that animals were sacrificed as sin-bearing offerings. In fact, all of the instruments of the inner court of the tabernacle and also the temple were made out of what? What material? Brass, because they all had to do with the judgments of God upon sin. Now, when brass is heated in a furnace until it is white hot, its glory is such that it cannot be looked upon with the naked eye. That's why men working with brass in a furnace have to wear special um, eyeglasses to protect their eyes. Now, think about it. It is upon such glowing, white-hot bronze feet that the Lord Jesus walks among his churches. And this is what we'll see in chapters 2 and 3. And think about it. It is upon such feet of judgment that he will tread down the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of this present world system. And that's what we'll see in chapters 4 through chapter 16. Or 19, actually 19. So do you see here that Revelation speaks of serious, serious judgment? Since this is the description we see of Christ. It's interesting, and you'll do this in your homework, to compare this description of Christ with the description in the Song of Solomon of the Beloved Bridegroom and see a difference there, how he appears to those who love him. He has raven black hair in that description. Now, back in verse 10, John had described the Lord's voice, remember, as the sound of what? A trumpet. But now here, in verse 15, he's descri- his voice is described as the sound of many waters. The roar of a flood of water emphasizes great power. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, have you ever been to Niagara Falls? I've been there once. You, you, you know when those, of course, when the falls are going over, they're always going over. You can hardly talk to the person right next to you because of that roar, the roar of the falls. Well, Christ's voice was like this. This is how he's being descri- described here as, you know, the, the power, the sound of mighty waters. So his voice being that of a trumpet symbolized to us that his voice is authoritative. Here, his voice being as the uh, sound of many waters, that symbolizes to us power. So he is authoritative and he is powerful. Now, as we continue with John's description of the glorified Christ in verse 16, I wish I had time to do it, but I don't. We'll have to continue it next week. Um, We're going to be encouraged a little bit more than today. Today is just judgment, judgment, judgment. But next week... We're going to see that even though he is standing in the midst of his churches as the holy, all-seeing, all-knowing, authoritative, powerful judge, yet he holds in his right hand the representatives of the churches. And this suggests to us his love and his care and his protection. So we have not only a picture of a fearful, holy judge who rightfully judges sin, But we also have a picture of a loving, caring judge who holds securely those who truly, truly belong to him. And I hope you do.
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time in your word. Thank you for the patience of your people, Lord. And thank you most of all for giving us this vision of your glorified, resurrected son who one day will come back to judge this world and who is right now judging the sins in his churches. And even more importantly, he is looking at the sins in our hearts. So, Lord, I pray that each of us would confess those known sins and that you would reveal to our hearts the secret sins that we're not even aware of, that you would make them known to us somehow, and that we might purify ourselves and get ourselves totally right before you by confessing all known sin and therefore being ready when you do come because we know it could be at any time. And, Lord, we want to be ready. If someone here is not ready to meet you face to face, I pray, Father, that she would do that today, that she would surrender to you totally, see you as King of kings and Lord of lords and coming judge, and that she would confess her sins, ask you into her heart, and truly be born again into your kingdom. And, Father, I pray that she would share that with us, that we might rejoice with her. And now we pray that you would bless us as we all sing together, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.